On today's episode, I talk with Jennifer Savage. Jennifer is the California Policy Manager at the nonprofit organization Surfrider Foundation. With experience as an environmental journalist, radio personality, event organizer, and freelance columnist, Jennifer spreads the word about threats and solutions to our ocean's health. Surfrider Organization is a grassroots nonprofit environmental organization that focuses on water quality, beach access, beach and surf spot preservation, and sustaining marine and coastal ecosystems. Surfrider Foundation is dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's oceans, waves, and beaches for all people through a powerful activist network. On this episode, Jennifer and I talk surfing California's beaches, the work of Surfrider Foundation, and how involvement in on-the-ground, or better yet, on-the-wave activism helps preserve the beaches and oceans we love. So hi, welcome Jennifer. Um, so you work for Surfrider Foundation, which is a nonprofit that works in ocean conservancy. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about this foundation and the work that you do? Yeah, sure, Allison. Thank you for asking. So yeah, Surfrider Foundation is a national organization and we do have international affiliates. We began in 1984 in Southern California. We have a chapter network across the country. So I lose track because there's always these new chapters and clubs that are starting up in different places. But I, at last count, there were more than 80 in the United wow. States and more than 20 here in California. So I was originally um, introduced to Surfrider through the Humboldt County chapter. I live up in Humboldt County. And became a volunteer there in 2008 and continued to volunteer with the chapter until 2015, at which point I was hired to be the California policy manager. So Surfrider's mission is the protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean, beaches, and waves for all people through a powerful activist network. So it's kind of long. <laughs> and what that really translates into for me and the work I do is I support our chapters on campaigns of statewide importance. I advocate for legislation that's related to coastal preservation, beach access, water quality, and ocean protection, and I engage with state agencies, particularly at the Coastal Commission. Wow, that's amazing work that you're all doing over there. Um, so what brought you to this line of work? What brought you to Surfrider Foundation? A love of the ocean, really. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the high desert north of LA and luckily had parents who would take us to the beach Every summer, they were pretty into scuba diving. Um, there used to be scuba diving lessons in our pool, and so and then and then everybody would go to the beach on the the weekend to you know practice in the actual ocean. And so, luckily, I was uh, brought along on those excursions and just you know loved the beach so much. So I always knew growing up that eventually I wanted to move away from the desert and out toward the, to the coast. So I ended up moving to Long Beach and then, you know, over the years made my way um, all the way up to Humboldt, you know, where I'm lucky, lucky enough to live on the peninsula between Humboldt Bay and the Pacific Ocean. So it's incredible. And I just, um, 
you know, I, I love the whole California coast. I just remain infatuated with it. There's something about the restorative power of the ocean that I, it, it just, it has never become commonplace. I mean, if like, as much as I've gone to the beach every time, it is like, oh yes, this. And I really um, find, you know, like lots of people find so much solace in the beach and the ocean. And when I was a young mom and didn't have much money, you know, it was hard, right? It's hard to raise kids, hard to raise kids without, you know, much of an income. But one thing I could always do is like take my kids to the beach and give them that joy and the fact that in California, the coast belongs to everyone mm-hmm. um, and how much that meant to me and how important that is, it just really informs the work I do around beach access and coastal preservation. Yeah, I really love that. I think it's it's fun to hear you talk about going to the beach when you were a kid and then thinking about seeing your own children experience the ocean. There's something so special about that. I feel like a lot of people I talk to who work in or around oceans or coasts have that similar experience of like going to the ocean as a kid. Um, And I'm just wondering, did you get into surfing earlier or later when you moved to California? I did not start surfing until I was 29. Oh, wow. So even though I grew up in Southern California and even though I went to the beach quite a bit, I was a very shy, awkward, kid and an extremely shy, awkward teenager. Um, So the idea of putting myself in a position in a public setting of having to like learn something and being, uh, you know, clumsy and just so self-conscious. I mean, it's, oh, if I could go back and just, you know, reassure shy, awkward children everywhere. Like you're going to be fine. Don't not try things <laughs> because I would be a much better surfer. Um, but I, I was uh, just about to turn 30 and I thought, what is something that I have always wanted to do? And I had always wanted to learn to surf. So instead of learning where it's relatively warm and friendly conditions, I learned up in Humboldt County where there's rocks everywhere and it's freezing cold and the currents are really strong. Um, but the upside is it's made it a lot easier when I go other places. <laughs> so, Yeah, I, I have some friends who are surfers and went from surfing in Southern California to Maine. And it's, it is interesting, the difference between, you know, cold water, harsher environments Mm -hmm. and the sort of warmer beach settings that you typically associate with surfing. So definitely is chillier up there in Humboldt County. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. But then, like I said, it's, you know, when you go, when you're used to wearing a thick wetsuit, Mm -hmm. and then you go somewhere that you can wear a thin one or don't have to wear one you feel amazing like a superhero you're like I can paddle forever (laughs) so um so how would you describe surf riders approach to oceans and coasts I know that's kind of a broad question but yeah yeah well you know to to sort of turn to a you know a darker place, um, as as we all know, the ocean faces challenges from pollution, habitat loss, development, climate change, offshore oil drilling, even renewable energy, which is a good thing. We need to make sure that it's done right. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things going on in the ocean already, and a desire to do more and more and more. So, 
Uh, for Surfrider, our ocean protection initiative includes everything from grassroots campaigns to establish and support marine protected areas, such as the you know, network that we have off the California coast, to opposing new offshore oil drilling and seismic testing, participating in regional ocean planning in, in certain areas, and to ensure that renewable ocean energy doesn't damage our ocean, which is like extremely relevant right now as California is ramping up to do all this offshore wind. Yeah, and it's something that seems so wonderful about Surfrider is that kind of joining of ocean conservancy and this, you know, protection of coastlines and also finding a community of people who come from a lot of different backgrounds that aren't just, you know, policy or conservation, but just being kind of united through this care for the ocean or the space. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the community aspect of Surfrider. Yeah, I love the fact that we are a grassroots organization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, working in high level policy kind of 24 seven, it can get extremely wonky and sometimes repetitive and sometimes, you know, very frustrating. But whenever I, I mean, pre-COVID, you could hang out in person, but, you know, even on Zoom, <laughs> like when I get to engage with the chapter activist and coming from that background myself, it's like that that passion and that on the ground expertise is so inspiring and it, it's critical to our success as well. But I also greatly appreciate that we're not an organization driven only by passion, but we absolutely operate within a scientific framework. Like that is so core to who we are because, you know, as an environmental organization, if you don't operate within, you know, the, the factual realm of, science, then, you know, you lose credibility. And so I think it speaks to, um, Surfrider's success really speaks to our um, embrace and uh, priority, prioritization of scientific principles guiding our work. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's that wonderful intersection, I feel like of, you know, actual practice of being out in a space and then also kind of joining in the scientific research aspect that you're talking about. And so I guess I'm also wondering, you know, California coast, you've talked about a few different things that are posed to the California coastline or that are at risk, I guess we'd say in terms of climate change. Is there one single thing that you would say um, is the greatest threat to California's coast? I mean, obviously there is a conjoining of many different environmental issues at play but is there one sort of uniting thing that you see? I mean, I would have to say sea level rise. Yeah. I mean, certainly we could, you know, go through a list of all kinds of like bad things that could happen, including mm -hmm. oil spills and such. But as far as the greatest known threat to the entire coast right now, it's sea level rise. Um, we are facing just ex extraordinarily extensive and expensive impacts. Uh, you know, where the, the models anticipate that California's um, coast could experience up to seven feet of sea level rise by 2100. I mean, that's, it's like so unfathomable to try to picture that. But if you think about all like the beaches in California, where already maybe at a high tide, there's not a lot of sand or, or some places there's no beach at high tide, all the kind of little pocket beaches where they're surrounded by bluffs, like all those beaches will be permanently underwater. And that is 
heartbreaking. You know, in Southern California, there's an estimate uh, by the USGS that up to 60% of Southern California beaches will be gone. And I, yeah, so to me, I mean, it is, it's literally an existential threat to California's coast. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And also, I mean, even just walking along California coast, you start to see these little erosion sites due to sea level rise. And so I guess I'm also wondering, you know, from a land-based perspective, you can kind of see where, mm-hmm. say, you know, a small area has fallen into the sea. But is there anything about the perspective of being a surfer or being out in the water and kind of looking back at land or thinking about something like coastal erosion from the perspective of surfing that you think is really unique? Absolutely. So there's two issues that are um, related to surfing that I, I that come to mind. And the first one is if there's no if there's no beach, then the waves, there's nothing absorbing the impact from the waves. So like I've served in North County, San Diego, for example. Mm-hmm. So like Solana Beach, Cardiff, that area. And at high tides, often the sand is covered up. And so the waves are just hitting the bluffs and then they're bouncing back. And so that, of course, completely destroys the waves and makes surfing impossible at high tide. And there's lots of places in California that are are like that, where they have, you know, there's the beaches are really skinny right now and there's bluffs. And so if, if, if we are experiencing what is, you know, more or less like going to be a permanent high tide, like the high tide we experience now is the low tide of the future, then all those places that are unsurfable at a high tide will be unsurfable in, you know, 50 years or however long. And, and that's the other thing, even places where there's uh, maybe more sand, a lot of spots don't break at a higher tide. So, so people who are listening who surf can think about like where they surf and if it's a tidally dependent spot and a lot of surf breaks are and you know what will happen if there's never a low tide again and and how many of our favorite surf breaks will no longer exist. Yeah, and that's so interesting. I was talking to someone else on the podcast about you know, California is so known for its beaches and for surfing even. And it's interesting for you to say, like, if you're a surfer out there, think about your favorite surfing spot, you know, like what does change when what you're known for is either no longer exists or isn't there or is different. It's, it's a major thing to think about, um, going forward. And I guess another question I have since you work in policy too, are there any barriers that you've run up against? You know, we're talking to the public and saying, you know, think about your surf spots, think about where you love to go. Do you have barriers? Is it education? Is it people knowing about this issue? Or do you hit any other kind of barriers in your work? Sure. Well, there's a lot, a lot of barriers. Um, There are the, the The most concrete barrier, uh, pun intended, is that <laughs> the response to sea level rise is often to do what we call hard armoring along mm-hmm. our coast. And so if anyone has been to the beach and seen, you know, walls, actual walls, you know, that are built to protect private property from 
storm surges and high tides and such, there's that's a form of hard armoring. A lot of places you'll see huge boulders dumped on the sand, and it, it's to serve the same um, sort of thing. It's often done to say like protect a parking lot. Uh, and it places where there's bluffs, sometimes the bluffs are covered in concrete to prevent them from collapsing, which if you just see this, you think, oh, well, that makes sense. You're like, you know, protecting private property and like keeping everything from moving around so it's safer and it's less destructive. But that is actually a complete fallacy because by interrupting the natural flow between the ocean and the beach, it makes the sand go away much faster. So every time we say that it's okay for a private property owner to put up a seawall to protect their property, the public pays by losing their beach. Mm -hmm. And so, so that plays out all the time at the, at the Coastal Commission, typically the California Coastal Commission, because mm -hmm. they approve or deny these types of armoring um, projects. And, and it's very complicated because people who own property on the coast typically are well-resourced and um, have a vested interest in their property and less so in whether or not the public has a beach. So it's very tricky politically. And then there's also the fact that sea level rise is a really slow crisis, right? Mm -hmm. We've got so much happening in California that is immediate and scary wildfires for example are you know would be the really obvious one uh, the drought so so then when you're like this is going to be a real crisis 30 years from now or 50 years from now it's hard you know it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that when there's so much else demanding attention and that plays into the political side of it too because if you're an elected official you and you're trying to make long-term decisions that aren't popular with your constituency mm -hmm. because it impacts their private property, you won't be an elected official for very long. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's just, so it's so complicated. And then there's a lack of uh, funding resources mm -hmm. for local governments to do the kind of planning that need to be done and to do the kind of outreach and education that might um, really help the public understand what is at stake. Yeah, it is interesting to think about the wildfires and how that's kind of bringing attention to the fact that these kind of natural disasters can cause such widespread damage. And I even think about with coastal erosion, like we've seen houses crumble into the ocean or cliffs or highways. And so it's, it's interesting what you're talking about that people still are kind of resistant to this, like you said, because of the long-term effect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you think about, you know, the people who are most impacted are not the people who live right on mm -hmm. the coast, who live right at the beach. So I think about like myself, for example, growing up in the desert a couple hours away from the ocean. And it's not, even as a, an adult, like, you know, we pay attention mostly to like very local politics mm -hmm. and national politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I love going to state parks and national parks and I, guess because of my line of work, I do kind of know what's going on there, but, but I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, like in my day to day, like there's lots of places I care about that I don't know day in and day out what the threats are and what the politics are and, and all of that. And so you have people in the central Valley, people in the high desert, people, you know, inland up here in Redding and Chico, um, you know, where it's, it's so hot, it's so hot in the summer and 
the beaches that those people go to that they love that belong to them just as much as anybody else in California, like those beaches are going to go away and they will be the ones who, you know, really lose the most. And so, you know, I think about that a lot and, and what, it, you know, saving the, the sand is important for so many reasons, like for surf breaks and for, you know, habitat for various creatures. And also it's, it becomes like an, a public access issue because if you can't go, if there's no beach to go to, then you just don't get to go to the beach anymore. Even if you have the right to go there, it's just no longer a place. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the question that I usually like to ask is, you know, where do you see us going from here? Like, is this going to be a public access question? Is that going to bring this, you know, into policy mind? Do you think that funding might come through now that more and more people are talking about this? Well, the good news is that because California has this $100 billion surplus uh, in the budget, that the governor and the legislature both have identified sea level rise and climate change adaptation in general as a, as a priority. Um, I mean, I would certainly hope they would identify that, right? Um, and, and not only have they identified it, but they are planning to allot, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to different state agencies to ensure that uh, they're there can be meaningful adaptation when it comes to sea level rise. So looking at things like restoring coastal wetlands, for example, coastal wetlands and coastal marshes are some of the, or I'm sorry, coastal wetlands and coastal dunes are some of the best defenses that we have when it comes to sea level rise because they provide room for, for that to happen and, and create a buffer and also provide really important habitat, right? So it's like win, win, win. Um, but we have we have built over most of our coastal dunes and wetlands or drained them or, you know, somehow altered them. And so this would provide um, a ton of money to to bring back in, uh, wetlands and protect wetlands and dunes, you know, where we can. And that's huge. So that's really helpful. And then there's a number of bills in the legislature tackling sea level rise, including one by uh, Senator Ben Allen which would provide funding for local governments to uh, buy properties that were at risk and then rent them out for the remainder of their lifespan. And then once they were too, you know, too imperiled, then they could, um, you know, then they could remove them. So it'd be a form of facilitating the kind of managed retreat that we need to see mm -hmm. and provide the funding and a mechanism for it. So not to get too like wonky and detailed, but it's a, it's a, it's a pretty exciting um, bill in, in the world that I work in. Cause we're, you know, we talk a lot about like, we, we have that, we have to move what we can, some things we can't move like wastewater treatment plants. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, build around those, but, um, but places where, we can move structures. We, you know, this is a, a way we can do it that supports the property owners, supports the local business, and supports the people of California. So we'll see if it gets all the way through. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm, as I told you, I'm out at Bodega and some of these dunes are so beautiful. I feel like I'm seeing wildlife that I don't see in other areas too. So it's been such a special experience to see these like beautiful large dunes out into the ocean and bay area and so I like to ask all of my podcast participants 
what their favorite part of the California coast is or something that they just find so special about the California coast that's kind of informed their care for this area. Uh, that is, I mean, it's almost like asking, you know, your favorite child or something, right? <laughs> California is such a huge state with so much beauty and such diverse beauty. Mm-hmm. So I, I love just so much of the coast. Like there's no place on the coast I don't adore in some way. Um, but I, I, will, I will give a shout out to the coastal dune forest. Uh, because I think it doesn't always get enough love and and it happens to be like I live adjacent to the coastal dune forest. So, you know, Humboldt County rightly is known for having these incredible, like mind-blowing redwood forest. I mean, and, it, and anyone who hasn't walked through old growth redwoods, like you have to do that. It is one of the most magical experiences a person could have. But there's also these incredible dune forests and what I, there's, I love so much about them, but they grow in the hollows of the dunes. And so they're kind of hidden, you know, they're not like up on the mountains and or hills. You, you don't really know when you're driving by because it's the valleys of the dunes. And, and yet there's like within, so I live right, like literally on the sand, like, or right by the, I live in the, the dunes. Um, and you can walk into the, this forest that's right by the ocean and have, it has, you know, huge dug firs. There's even like a redwood here or there. There's all these ferns, there's mushrooms during the rain, like thousands of types of mushrooms during the rainy season. And, you know, everything from osprey to owls to a zillion little birds, I don't know the names of, and, you know, foxes. And like, it is, it is such a, an incredible thriving uh, biodiverse habitat and uh, it is super cool to walk through. And I love that it is right, you know, I have Humboldt Bay on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other and the forest in the middle. And it is just, that's very cool. That's amazing. Yeah, I I used to love the forest on the ocean up in Maine because when I was little, I used to walk through and there'd be mussel shells. And it seems like there's this kind of, you know, permeability on these coastal areas where you can have forests, but it's also kind of oceanic. So I love hearing you talk about that. Um, And also now I have somewhere that I need to go because I've never been there. So that's exciting for me. Yeah, Um, it's, uh, well, we were lucky that a a pretty sizable chunk of private property was recently acquired by uh, some land stewards. And mm -hmm. so it used to be all private and now it's public. and, And so it's just, like a wonderful step in the overall effort to preserving our coastal dunes and wetlands. And it's, yeah, very, it's still kind of, it's very exciting. Yeah, that, that's an amazing, amazing thing that's happened. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. And thank you and Surfrider Foundation for the work that you're all doing to help preserve our coasts and our oceans. So it's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, well, thanks, Allison. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And I appreciate the invite. Many thanks to the Belinsky Foundation and the Belinsky Fellowship at Bodega Bay Marine Lab for providing the funding that made this series possible.